0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, 70% of House Republicans belong to the Republican Study Committee, which just released a budget that calls for curtailing programs supporting racial equity and LGBTQ rights, Natch, and also for increased cuts and access hurdles for Social Security and Medicare. It's a tale as old as time, how some people want to take resources explicitly designated for seniors and disabled people and funnel them to the wealthy in supposed service of saving those popular social programs. We've been asking for debunking of that storyline for years now from Nancy Altman, president of the group Social Security Works and author of books including The Battle for Social Security, from FDR's Vision to Bush's Gamble. We'll get some more debunking today, because when it comes to Social Security, it seems that everything old will always be new again. Also on the show, whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg died last week at the age of 92, and elite media did the thing they do, where they sort of honor someone they discredited in life, burnishing their own reputation as truth-tellers while still somehow dishonoring the practice of truth-telling of the sort that afflicts the comfortable Counterspin spoke with Daniel Ellsberg many times over the years. We'll hear a little bit of that today on the show. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. A piece for FAIR cited a New York Times article describing the federal budget deficit as, quote, "...overwhelmingly a consequence of American military outlay and entitlement programs, such as Social Security, together with the nation's unwillingness to pay the taxes needed to finance the expenditures." Close quote. Here's the thing. That scaremongering about the runaway cost and unmanageability of Social Security, the like of which you may have heard very recently— is how I introduced our next guest in 2018. And here's the other thing. The New York Times article cited in that piece, which was written for FAIR by veteran Times reporter John Hess, came out in 1988. It isn't just that corporate news media get things wrong about Social Security, it's that they stubbornly get the same things wrong maybe most importantly, presenting it as a contentious issue in this year's budget battles, when in fact the fight over Social Security is an ideological one, with many on one side and few on the other, that's been going on since the program began. The budget blueprint released by the House Republican Study Committee last week provides a new opportunity to trot out misinformation and a new chance to combat it. We're joined now by Nancy Altman, president of Social Security Works and author of, among other titles, The Truth About Social Security. The founder's words refute revisionist history, zombie lies, and common misunderstandings. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Nancy Altman.
1: Thank you so much. And what you just, in your intro, is a zombie lie. that that Social Security is adding even a penny to the deficit. So I'm so glad we're going to have this conversation.
0: Well, let's start right there. I mean, I keep reading set to be insolvent in 2033, right, as though Social Security is a building on fire, you know. So let's leap right into those myths because I know that some folks are going to say, oh, so you're saying there's no problem You know, you're saying that Social Security doesn't require any support. There's so much misunderstanding about what the questions actually are and then how we might respond to them. So have at it.
1: Well, I think you're exactly right to talk about it. Is this a building on fire or is it down the road? You have to put your children through college. So you got to think about putting outside some money for their college education. I mean, I think it's much closer to the latter than the former. It's not that nothing should be done. In fact, I think the program should be expanded. I think we're facing a retirement income crisis and the solution is expanding social security. But just to put a few of the myths to rest, and you're exactly right. The problem is that the media keeps misreporting this over and over again. I smiled when you talked about the 1980s because I started working on this program in the in 1970s, I was involved with the so-called Greenspan Commission in 1982. At that time, I was told, oh, there's a crisis. We can't afford this program. There are all these greedy old people. And you, and I was young at the time, you're not going to get your benefits. Well, all that happened was I aged and now my children, the grandchildren are being told they're not going to get their benefits hmm. because I'm greedy. Right. So it's, it, it, it um, and that all that is, is, is the passage of time. So here are the facts. Social Security is a defined benefit pension plan that provides life insurance, disability insurance, and retirement annuities. And it does so extremely efficiently. It spends less than a penny of every dollar it spends, less than a penny of federal administration, more than 99 cents is returned In benefits, it's extremely efficient. It also is extremely responsibly managed. Every year there are about 40 actuaries at the Social Security Administration. And just like any private insurance company, they are looking at longevity and birth rates and wage growth and all kinds of factors to make sure that Social Security can always pay its benefits. It doesn't just project out 10 years or 20 years. So three-quarters of the century, 75 years. And whenever you project out so far, sometimes you're going to show unintended surpluses. Sometimes you're going to have unintended shortfalls. And what the actuaries have been telling us is that there is a shortfall, it's quite manageable. It's now about a decade away, so we've got plenty of time to bring in additional revenue. If Congress were to do nothing, Social Security could still pay... 75% of promised benefits, 75 cents on the dollar. But of course, we want it to pay 100% of, you know, whatever, because these are earned benefits. And there are many proposals, including many in Congress, that restore Social Security to long-range balance. But the opponents of Social Security have latched onto this unsurprising manageable shortfall and talked about the building on fire. And they've been talking this way since The program
0: began really. Well and that's what I want to sort of get at because it's so funny the way that the proffered solution always turns out to be cuts and yet that's being presented as saving the program. There's a perversity there that says, you know, we need to burn the village to save it.
1: Exactly. It's, if Congress doesn't act, there may be some cuts in the future, so let's make the cuts now. <laughs> it's really like, wait, what? I thought yeah. we were trying to prevent the cuts. Right. And it's exactly right. I call it a solution in search of a problem. The solution is we've got to cut benefits. But, you know, as, as I do in my educational and advocacy role, people will say, everybody's living longer, so we've got to cut benefits by raising the retirement age. And I'll point out, well, Certain, you know, people who are physically demanding jobs, certain minorities, they're not living longer. In fact, their life expectancies are going down. Oh, well, then we've got to cut benefits because it's unfair to them. I mean, it's like, wait, what? And really what is behind this is that from the beginning, there's been people who have opposed Social Security. President Dwight Eisenhower, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower, in a private letter to his brother, which you can find online, said that they are a tiny splinter group. Their numbers are negligent, but they are stupid, he says. They tend to be the very wealthy who think they can just self-insure and don't want to pay any money towards the common good. Now, they used to be quite honest, and they'd called Social Security socialism. The problem is that the American people appreciate what Social Security provides, and so they always lost. Then starting somewhere in the 70s, Those tactics changed, and unless they all disappeared, it's hard to believe that happened. They say, no, we love Social Security, but we can't afford it. And they make it a point about affordability. Let me put the affordability question Mm -hmm. in context. Social Security currently costs about 5% of gross domestic product. At the end of this century, year 2100. It's going to cost about six percent of gross domestic product. That's what we're fighting about, this one percent increase in gross domestic product. Now, when the COVID epidemic hit, we spent more than one percent on all the ways to combat that. After the 9/11 attacks, we spent more than one percent on increase in military spending. In fact, if you even just look at the baby boom and the, because these costs are because the baby boom is moving into its retirement years, and there was a baby bus following it and so forth, that when the baby boomers hit kindergarten, we spent more than 1% of GDP on increased classrooms and hiring teachers and so forth. And those three, the COVID, the 9-11, and even baby boomers entering kindergarten were surprises to policy ministry. This was not a surprise.
0: We're hearing how we can't afford this and we can't afford that. And you have to ask who we Bono, you know, because certainly even in this uh, Republican Study Committee plan, not everyone is tightening their belt. You know, not everyone is rallying around and suffering together. There are some folks who are spared from what we're being told is meant to be a shared social cost.
1: Well, and in fact, not even... Are they they're benefiting the, the same Republican Study Committee budget, which calls for increasing the retirement age, slashing middle-class benefits, privatizing Medicare, transforming it into a premium support, which is just giving people a coupon and telling them to go out on the market. At the same time that they're really hitting the middle-class and working-class, they're giving tax cuts to billionaires. That makes no sense. I mean, if you look at how people did during the, the, the worst part of the COVID pandemic, so many people lost income, lost jobs, lost their lives. But the billionaires increased their wealth substantially. So there's no question that there are ways and there are proposals out there that are not undue burdens to anyone who acquired the very wealthiest, those earning millions and billions of dollars. To pay what I would consider their fair share and at the same time expand benefits. But what the Republican study committee, which is the makes up of that, that 70% of the House Republicans are a part of that. And what Republicans in the Senate also are calling for is exactly what you're saying. Belt tightening for those who are middle class and working class and big gifts to those who are the wealthiest. And that makes absolutely no sense, and is not what the American people want. So there's a real debate going on, but one side, 80% of the American people favor, which is the no cuts and let's expand and make the wealthy pay more, and the other side, which is let's go behind closed doors and cut benefits, but not have a fingerprints on them. And that's what makes the debate so hard, because it's got to be transparent for everyone to think.
0: Well, I want to point out one thing just that you have also indicated because media and many people often shorthand Social Security with benefits for seniors or programs for the elderly. And I just want us to tip the fact that Social Security deeply impacts the lives of many disabled people as well, and they're often erased in media debates. But certainly if this budget were to go forward, disabled people would really feel the brunt
1: First of all, I'm so glad you raised that because Social Security is also the nation's largest children's program because of the survivor benefits and the family benefits. More children benefit from Social Security. The benefits are not by no means generous, but they are extremely important when a breadwinner dies or becomes so disabled that they can no longer work. And you're exactly right that it's Disability insurance is an extremely important part of the program, and the Republican Study Committee really goes after the disability insurance part. makes it harder to get benefits, makes it harder to keep getting those benefits. It is really hostile to that group, so I'm so glad you raised that. And the point is that Social Security, one of the many reasons I think it's so popular, it really embodies basic American values. And it is this idea of we're united. We all contribute. The idea is that it's insurance against the loss of wages. You don't get benefits unless there's a work record. But if you're 30 years old and you walk out in the street and get hit by a truck, you know, God forbid, and can no longer work again, you get benefits for the remainder of your life. If you have Young children and instead of just becoming disabled, you're, you're killed. Your children will get benefits until age 18. Now they used to get them until 22. And many of us think that should be restored or even higher because normally parents will help their children finance their college educations. But if the parent is gone through that, then the rest of us step in. So you're exactly right that this is a program that benefits all of us. And even indirectly, you know, many children receive benefits directly, but they also often live in families where they're living with their grandparents, their grandparents getting Social Security. It really is a family program, and I think that's part of the reason it's, it's so well-supported.
0: Well, just finally and briefly, Social Security Works is the name of the group. It's the title of the book you co-authored with Eric Kingston. And I really like that verb there. It works, you know, it works to do, as you're just saying, real things for real people. And it's countering this idea that you get every time you pick up the paper, which is that it's broken, you know, that Social Security is broken or failing or struggling. And I know it's just words. But it seems so crucial because in news media, social security is a problem, you know, but actually social security is a program that works that we just need to keep working.
1: Exactly. And in fact, I consider it even more than that. I consider it a solution. Mm-hmm. Private pensions have largely, in the private sector, have largely disappeared. 401 pays have proven inadequate for it. Most people, other than the very wealthy, the one part of our retirement income system that does work is Social Security. It's the most universal. It's portable from job to job. It's very fair. And it's distribution. It's extremely efficient. It's one shortcoming is that its benefits are too low, which is why we need to expand it. But you're exactly right. There's an elite media view that is very hard Shaky. As you say, you could go back decades and you'll see the same articles. But somehow you're right. It's a problem. It's a drain. It's a you know it's unaffordable. It's this. It's that. When actually, it's extremely efficient. It works extremely well. Indeed, it is a solution. We should build on it because it works so well.
0: We've been speaking with Nancy Altman from Social Security Works there online at socialsecurityworks.org. Nancy Altman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Daniel Ellsberg died June 16th, aged 92. The New York Times obituary by Robert McFadden used its first establishing sentence to reference Ellsberg's, quote, sobbing anti-war epiphany on a bathroom floor, close quote. And it ended that lead with the statement that, quote, the disclosure of the Pentagon papers plunged a nation that was already wounded and divided by the war deeper into angry controversy, close quote. Well, you don't have to be a linguist to sense the suggestion that the disclosure did the plunging and not the crimes themselves. Elite media's respectful obituaries of Ellsberg have had something just a bit off, allowing, if not encouraging, the idea that Ellsberg somehow, however well-intentioned, made a bad thing worse. It's anyone's guess how elite media square their supposed honoring of Ellsberg with their hagiography of undying goblin Henry Kissinger, who called Ellsberg, based on the exact actions the press now suggests they salute, the most dangerous man in America. And certainly don't ask how their respect for Ellsberg relates to their collective sniffing at living whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, or Julian Assange. Corporate media would like you to glide past their not-coherent stance on whistleblowers, how they can accept trophies for printing their revelations while consigning them to invisibility and worse for revealing them. Daniel Ellsberg had questions about that, and we should keep those questions alive. Here's Daniel Ellsberg on Counterspin in September 2009. Host Peter Hart asked if, having decided to risk his career and his life— He had tried going through political channels. And was it the blockage there that sent him to the press?
2: That is why I went to the press. That was a mistake on my part, in a way, because I should have done that right from the beginning. But uh, it seemed to me that congressional hearings were called for on this, in part because the Pentagon Papers don't entirely speak for themselves or don't tell the whole story in the sense that what's written down, even in top secret form and in eyes only memos and so forth, doesn't represent by any means the whole truth that's in the minds of the people who signed those reports. You really have to have interviews or you have to talk to these people, a lot of it doesn't get written down precisely because it might leak, and I don't mean leak to the public, it might leak to the other service or to Congress or to uh, people who control your budget, the real enemies in some ways. So a lot of that doesn't get written down at all. I'm very aware, in other words, of the limitations of documents, even when it's as extensive as the Pentagon Papers. What I didn't realize was that Congress just wasn't going to grab that issue unless and perhaps even then, unless the public created a fire there and there was a public interest, I think Neil Sheehan, for example, was nervous. Uh, as late as 1971 in the spring, that uh, I would insist on getting this material out first through Congress, and he felt that wouldn't be the most effective way to do it. And he was right about that. Now I would have deferred to that if he'd made it clear at the point. But I, as it was uh, when the Pentagon Papers came out on June 13th, 71, I was still in the process of trying to encourage uh, Senator Gravel or before him uh, Pete McCloskey of the House, Senator Mathias, I'd finally given up on Senator McGovern at that point, and Senator Fulbright. My advice right now for people who feel that we're heading toward an abyss, for example, in Afghanistan and if they know what I'm sh- I feel sure people do know in the Pentagon that uh, the 45,000 we've heard as the upper limit of what General McChrystal may ask for uh, is by no means the ceiling on the numbers that uh, the president has heard. That has not leaked to the public at all. No official, not even on anonymous sources have said what I'm sure is being discussed right now in the Pentagon.
0: Well, let's talk more about the current landscape because certainly for those who did not live through the history of the Vietnam War, I think they would be very struck by the press's reaction at the time. Seventeen papers picked up parts of the Pentagon Papers. It was featured on the evening newscasts for weeks. And I think for many people, it would be almost impossible to imagine the media system of today reacting in quite the same way to a, a story of that magnitude. What do you think?
2: Well, Nixon, of course, created what could be called a firestorm on that one for about a month by two unprecedented actions, mainly the first. It was the first injunction in our history. The First Amendment was actually written to prevent another Peter Zenger case in the colonial administration of prior restraint, of stopping a newspaper from actually printing news on the grounds that it would um, – for what, for any grounds, whatever. And so no one had ever tried to do that before. In fact, when Nixon on the tapes, we hear him asking John Mitchell, who wants an injunction, uh, have we done this before? Mitchell says, oh, sure, lots of times, <laughs> which shows what you get when you make uh, your campaign manager your attorney general. Uh, He was a, a bond lawyer, basically. So that was an incredible error on his part. Well, by the injunction challenging the press on this, that created the story had I not had enough copies, which I would made at my wife's behest actually to to get on with it and to make enough copies so that the FBI couldn't get all my copies away from me. That gave me extra copies so that when there was one injunction after another, which actually I had not foreseen, I had extra copies to give other newspapers. So you then had an, an event unprecedented. I think not only in the press, but in any institution of any country before or since. You had a wave of civil disobedience among major institutions. Nineteen newspapers, seventeen after the Washington Post and the Times, defied the Attorney General and the President, who were telling them that this wasn't just an ordinary crime, this was they called it treason, they used the word treason, that it would damage our national security if they printed another page. And publisher after publisher, following the lead of the New York Times and the Post, which gave them a, a strong feeling that they were on the right track here. But they they followed their own judgment and said, we don't think this will damage the national security, whatever the president says, and they defied him.
0: In 2005, counterspin Steve Rendell talked to Ellsberg about Israeli whistleblower Mordecai Venunu, but also about the core role of whistleblowers.
3: To the extent that sources can be punished, as was attempted in my case, or uh, which Vanunu experienced here. Obviously, the intent of that is to close down information from people who are not authorized to give it, which is to say real news, real information. Otherwise, you're left with handouts uh, and an account of government decision-making that is simply what the government wants you to know, or permits you to know. And that's not a democracy. That's basically you've got a monarchy or a dictatorship in that respect in foreign affairs. And that's pretty much what we would have if we had a, uh, the total control over sources. So journalists and the public have an extreme interest in pr- protecting the ability of people inside the government to give information without authorization. That is information that their bosses would find uh, embarrassing because it would reveal crimes or errors or misjudgments or lies. That's mainly the kind of thing that they're above all interested in keeping secret. And uh, it's what the public needs to know in order to hold them accountable and to exert any real democratic control over foreign policy.
0: In an article for A Counterpunch in 2006, Daniel Ellsberg said, I would not have thought of copying the Pentagon Papers, risking a possible lifetime in prison, without the example of thousands of young Americans who were doing everything they could to oppose a wrongful, hopeless war. They showed civic courage. And Ellsberg added, courage is contagious. That's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR, based in New York. You can learn more about FAIR on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.